ဝယ်ကမ်းတူစီဇံ Uh, thank you so much. So um, who I am. So as you said, I am a food writer. Um, so like for the past 10 years, um, I've mainly just talked about food, mainly Asian food, mainly Burmese food. Although when I say Burmese food, because my family are from Mandalay and Mogul, um, the food I know best is upper Myanmar. So Shanzar or Mogulzar or Elamiori Padmanzar. Um, so that's that's what my my writing's about. Um, I've written two cookbooks. Uh, the first cookbook is just called Noodle, um, and it's about noodles. Haha. Uh, different types of noodles. <laughs> different types of noodles, but like all over Asia. So Vietnamese, mm. you know, Japanese, Chinese, all all lots and lots of different. Um, types of noodles um, but my second book is just Myanmar, just Burmese food um, and that's called Mandalay uh, recipes and tales from a Burmese kitchen um, and so I've been writing for a really long time but I haven't really written about anything apart from food until recently um, and in terms of like my background so um, I was actually born in the UK so my family uh, came to the UK about four months before I was born. So I was I was just born here. Um, oh. but I have older brothers as well. Yeah. So so I was I was a about um, <laughs> that's what that's what my mother always says also my my mother had um like a, a funny uterus which meant that she wasn't showing so no one knew she was pregnant when she came oh to God. the country really? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah 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 so like Oh, she knew and like my dad knew, but like no one, like their friends and, and colleagues didn't know. So so my mom, they're both doctors. And so they came to this country and a few months later I, I went, hello. And everyone was very surprised. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, I'm like the baby. So I've got two older brothers. Um, and then, so I, I grew up here in the UK, but my parents uh, always thought they would go back to Myanmar. That was their ideal. I think it's still their dream to go back. But I'm in my 40s, so it's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but so so we've been going back a lot, but just to visit family because most of our family are still in um, Myanmar. So my my dad's family is still in Mandalay. My mum's family moved from Mogo down to Yangon mainly because it's very cold and <laughs> so, so a lot of them moved down to Yangon. Um, but we still have some family in Mogo. So when when we visit, we go visit everybody around the country. Um, and and it, it's nice, but my parents never moved back permanently. I think they still want to. They still think, yeah, but they're already retired. So it's uh, I don't know if it will happen, especially not now, because obviously situation, all sorts of issues means that they um, they haven't been back since 2000, 2000 and 
19 December is the last time my family went to visit. Um, that was just before, obviously, the, the pandemic. Um, oh, and so, right. so we haven't seen our family since then, um, just because, you know, all the borders closed. Um, and yeah, and so, so what, what do I do? So yeah, so I write about food. And then since, since February, I write about not food anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, food plus and other things yeah. that the coup has disturbed. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, can you tell me like, what was it like for you to, um, grow up in, 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 in the UK, you know, as Burmese, would did you have a lot of questions around why you are raised in this country that are, that is not yours? Of course, you were born there, but mm. then your parents were Burmese. And what was it like for you as a child to to be brought up in a foreign country where you don't look like most of them? Oh, um, <laughs> well, we have the, the same issues that anyone has, especially in, you know, a, a country that's predominantly a white country. So you face, you know, a lot of racism, you know, you, 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 when I was five years old, when I was told to go back to my own country. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, wow. very early, very early on, you, 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 people make it clear that they don't think you belong just because you're the wrong color. So, so there's a, an extra layer of uh, <laughs> issues and problems that you have in, in this country and, and, and not being in your, your motherland, I suppose. Um, because, you know, I was born here, so it's not like they can say, go back to where you were born. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but I mean, I guess the, the, I mean, the reason we were here, I, I, I never questioned it. I don't think we ever really questioned it because the, the reason we were here is we're not, my family aren't refugees, but we are here for our own safety because my family on both sides, um, there were a lot of like dissidents, um, a lot of political prisoners. Um, I think at one stage, every man in my dad's side of the family had been to prison, some twice. Uh, my dad was close to being put in prison and that's one of the reasons why we came here. So so it was basically, my mum my said, if we don't leave and go to another country, you're not gonna grow up with a father, basically. So. So yeah, that's why we're here. So, so even though obviously there are difficulties in this country, we were always told that it was safer to be in the UK than to be in Myanmar. So, have you like what? What was it like for you when you first visit to Burma? Um, it was really lovely. So when I was so I first visited when I was eight years old, but before that, my grandparents came to stay when I was three. They came to stay for a year. Um, and then my family in Burma always wrote to me and we wrote back, you know, the, the air letter, air mail. Yeah. So, um, so I had a relationship with my family, even though I didn't get to meet them yet. And so it was and, and you know, we, we swapped photos. And so we, we I had I knew what people looked like and I knew that I had my grandparents were there. I knew my family were there, my aunties, my uncles, my cousins. Um, and so when I first went for the first time when I was eight years old, it was like it was kind of like magic because it's like, wow, all of these people that you really love but never really got to meet before you're now meeting in real life. So, you know, like if you have like a pen pal, you, you write to someone, <laughs> it's that yeah. kind of thing. But because it's family, it's even more important. So, so yeah, it was suddenly I had a second home, you know, I had all of these people who already loved me, <laughs> even, <laughs> even, if I, even if I didn't deserve it. Um, they loved me because, you know, I was their 
Chison um, Miele Barbalos. I was the youngest as well because my oh. my mum's the youngest out of all her brothers and sisters, and then I'm the youngest out of her children. So I was the baby, basically. The spoiled so. one. <laughs> <laughs> spoiled, but also because because I was the girl, because I've got two brothers, it's the classic, you, you know, you yeah. know the, the brothers are allowed a bit more freedom than the, the daughter. Oh, so, yeah. Great. <laughs> wow. And um, like, I know that you also um, speak Burmese. Like, when did you realize that you wanted to speak Burmese? Is there something that your parents deliberately, um, like, you know, trained you within, like, when you're a child to speak and to learn those random words in the in the family dinner or something like like? How did you manage to learn some of the Burmese language and still can speak and understand it? Because it's so, like usually people don't remember the language, right? No. Um, so it, it's kind of funny. So you know what I was saying about how this <laughs> the UK is quite racist, as I've already explained. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things that they did, especially in the 80s, so I'm, I'm 42. So in, in the 1980s and, and the 70s, a lot of schools had a policy where they said that if you were from a foreign family, you shouldn't speak the foreign language at all. So not just in public, but at home as well. And so my my parents actually went for a meeting with our school's head teacher, and the head teacher said, "You can't speak Burmese at all. You can't speak it at home because if you speak it, then your children will never learn English, which is ridiculous and silly oh because God. we're we're growing up in the UK. So how can we not learn English, right? You're surrounded in English, so." So that was his, he, you know, that was his policy. So he said, And so my parents' attitude is very stubborn. And so they did the opposite, right? And so, <laughs> and so they went, no, we're going to teach our children because if we don't teach them, no one else is going to teach them. There's no way else they can learn. And so I, I was always... They always spoke to me in Burmese. They still do speak to me in Burmese. I don't think my parents have ever spoken to me in English ever, <laughs> apart from apart from publicly if there are other people around. Um, so they always spoke to me in Burmese. And then because, you know, when you're a child, you're lazy and also you want to fit in. <laughs> I didn't speak it back to them until I went to Burma for the first time. Because when I was eight years old and went to Burma, I realized that my family in Burma couldn't understand me, even though I could understand them. Yeah. And so I suddenly thought, oh no, I have to stop speaking Burmese. <laughs> so you this, had a you know, epiphany, yeah. <laughs> I know, and it's funny because like, I'm kind of hoping the same thing will happen with my own daughter. My own daughter's eight years old now. And so we try and do the same thing. So I, I, I try to speak to her in Burmese. I'm obviously not as strict as my own parents were. So, <laughs> but I try to speak to them in Burmese. I'm married to an Englishman, so he speaks to my children in English. So we've only got one parent that's doing the kind of the, the training, which is makes it more difficult. But then my parents are around and they help. So they also speak to my children in Burmese. So the same kind of things happening when my children understand it okay, not brilliantly, but they, they won't speak it back. Unless you kind of say, so you say to them things like, and then my son will go, you know, that kind of thing. So that's about oh, the so level. That, that is the level of Burmese that they can do right now. Um, and I, it was kind of the same for me. But like I said, suddenly I realized 
when I when I went to Burma, I realized that my family wouldn't understand me unless I, I talked back to them in Burmese. And so I, I, I said, oh, okay, I have to start. And you'd, you, when you're eight years old also, you want everyone to, you know, you're very talkative. I, the, your yeah. average eight-year-old child <laughs> just won't Center shut up. Center of the right? attention, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so suddenly I, I suddenly started speaking Burmese and obviously my parents were very happy because until that point <laughs> I had refused to. So there you go. It was because I wanted people to understand me. That's why I started speaking Burmese when I was eight years old. So. Yeah, but I think I really love that your parent deliberately did that to you. Like, you know, make mm. you speak or understand the and the language. So because I feel like language preserve a lot of things like the culture and the, the value our society holds as well. And I mean, I'm glad that you realized it at the age of eight when you visited Burma. And I want to, because you are you are someone who writes about food, I want to ask you, what was the first food when you arrived in Burma that you find the most, like, you know, taste? I know I'm sure your parents cooked for you Burmese food, but mm. when you arrived in Myanmar, what was the Myanmar food, which Myanmar food that stayed with you the most? Like, did you like it? And in, in even in the UK, like, which food did you love eating most or prefer uh, eating? Um. So it's funny because especially where I live, it's very, very English. I'm still in the same part of the world. Um, <laughs> and so in in the same way that my parents made sure that they spoke to me only in Burmese, at home, my mum only ever cooked Burmese food. Um, and so I grew up like ever since I was been Holly. Uh, and when I was very little, my favorite thing um, was I, I made up this name. It was Eggy, Eggy Mama. Eggy Mama is a joke And so that's that's what I ate ever since I was little. I've always eaten Burmese food. Um, so I, I ate English food at school because they provided school dinners, right? Uh -huh. So so I'd be at school eating very, very English food. And then at home, <laughs> I'd be eating very, very Burmese food. So it wasn't a surprise, you know. The the thing that was different, though, when I went to Burma is that, especially at the time we went, it was 1987, 1987 is the first time we went, um, the ingredients in this country, you couldn't get all the ingredients you wanted. So mm. my my favorite dish, even now, is probably mishebo. So mm. in 87, you don't have, like, proper rice noodles. And so my mom used to use spaghetti instead because spaghetti is all that's available, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you do what you can, right? Yeah. So so I was used to eating miso with spaghetti. So then Bamabi a 87 it was suddenly proper miso. And so mm. so that was really interesting and really exciting to me because my mom Which would was be better like, yeah. for you. So I actually prefer I prefer proper rice noodles. I prefer miso. Mm. But when I'm feeling kind of nostalgic, I use spaghetti because that reminds me of my childhood here. Yeah. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was your food preference. Um, and I also want to kind of like dive into the the part where having to grow up in a society where your family has a very different value. I must say, like they must have some Myanmar traditional value in terms mm. of like how they want you to grow up, right? And yeah. you also live in a society like where predominantly it's um racist and like um <laughs> with a white a white domination it was there. Like how did you adjust as a child? Did you like in in a classroom or at workplace did you have a lot of kind of dilemma or like you know the value um contradictory situation where as a as a as a someone who a uk citizen you must follow this but as myanmar citizen it's not ethically correct or something like that you know did you yeah. go through that kind of phase yeah definitely uh not it might not have been willingly <laughs> but you know, because that's the thing you obviously because I get these values that have been in, like taught to me by my parents and and my parents it's even now I'm not really sure whether it's Burmese value or whether it's Buddhist value or you know mm-hmm. um because so so one thing you uh, I should explain is that my my family my parents aren't Burma right so they're a mix on both sides so if you think of my exact mix, I am quarter Shan, quarter Bama, quarter Dio, quarter Inda, right? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I'm very mixed. I'm like a mongrel, <laughs> very mixed up, which means that I like have traditions and sayings and foods from lots of different cultures. And it meant that like my, my oldest auntie, was rude about everything like she was rude about everyone and then she said <laughs> and very old-fashioned auntie but it so so like I say I don't I don't even really know whether the values I have are particularly tied to any culture or religion or anything but we do have some kind of things where so like my family my parents don't drink right um and they think alcohol is a really bad thing right (laughs) so I know and I think that's a very old-fashioned thing and I think that is partly Buddhist but I think it's just old-fashioned Burmese people right Mm, um and so I mean like even now like I drink a little bit but I don't drink that much and that's and that's because like I said when I was little it was kind of I was told that it was a bad thing and only bad people right. drink alcohol. You know? <laughs> I, I have told, like, I've been told the same way. Yeah, <laughs> the same exactly. Thing. But so, so, so it's kind of funny. And it's not just me, it's my brothers as well. So like my, my, whenever my, my brothers, sometimes like on Facebook, they'll put up a photo of them drinking a beer. And my mom will be immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. so, still. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And bear in mind, my brother's like 50. So. <laughs> Oh God! Still a so, kid in front of parents. Yeah, always. you never stop being a kid. So, so yeah. So there's that kind of thing. So you know, the, the the no alcohol thing, and I guess that made things a little bit difficult because here, obviously, drinking is a huge culture, but it's not just a culture like for socializing. It's a it's a work thing as well, mm-hmm. and so you have work meetings where you go drinking like after work or sometimes at lunchtime, and so yeah. me saying I don't drink would make people give me a funny look or think that I wasn't uh, like sociable. So it's things right. like that made life a little bit and still that makes life a little bit difficult. Cause yeah, no, I don't, I still don't like just going to the pub, you know, I still don't like just going to a bar. It's not, 
and I like food more anyway. So if you say go to a restaurant, I'm really happy. You know? <laughs> uh, but if someone says, do you want to go for a drink? I'm less interested. Um, That's so interesting. And, and yeah, so I think that is partly like a cultural thing that was handed down for me. So I, t I tell you what, this this is another thing that I'm going to complain about. <laughs> See, you, you, you thought you were going to talk about fun things and I'm just complaining now. Um, yeah, but, sure. But when, <laughs> when I was growing up and I don't think this is done, I think this isn't. In, so like in, in in new new generations new new Burma new Myanmar I don't think this is so much of a thing but when I was young and this was definitely everyone I knew we didn't celebrate birthdays oh right? yeah me so, too yeah me okay so because <laughs> I know it's changed quite a lot now people oh people yeah are like really happy it becomes but, a trend yeah. yeah 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 so but when I was growing up we never celebrated birthdays in fact you know, it's kind of you, and I don't, I don't know if people still do this, but when I was younger, there was a a, a habit there. People who are techie purely, so you'd say you were younger than you were, uh, oh. on purpose, uh, either because of a license or uh, something to do with your mabongden, or you know, there, there was always people where they would never give their real birthday, and I think that's still the case now. I know lots oh, of oh yeah, some of them, yeah, me yeah, too, with, I with fake birthdays, right? Yeah, yeah. so. So you don't celebrate your birthday, but that meant that obviously here birthdays are the important. the most important thing. And so, <laughs> and so everyone else would have birthday parties when I was growing up, and I never had a birthday party. And so I had people like my friends, my school friends, would say, "Why don't you have birthday party? What's wrong with you?" You know, and I oh just like it's not my culture, you know. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was another thing that was kind of. That's Difficult. funny though, because I always think that birthday is not something that someone who is born should be celebrating, but all, but the parents who gave us birth because they work really hard. I did nothing. I just came out of no, I know. your JJ. Exactly. So, you know, this is the, this is the distinction between what, what I what my mom and dad go is this is western culture and this is Burmese culture right <laughs> and so like yeah. you know the thing about like mother's day and stuff so yeah, on Father's yeah. Day. so we never did that growing up and my mom's attitude was always <laughs> you got to be a good every day right you can't just be horrible the rest of the year and suddenly on mother's day go oh just so me cool here's your present right just, just that's just a very don't... good point <laughs> yeah so so my mom was like just don't get in trouble and i'm happy right you don't have oh. to give me flowers and stuff <laughs> yeah oh my god that is actually very true that it's 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 also highly celebrated in the western country like mother's day father's mm. day right like yeah. and like i remember when i started noticing about mother's day and father's day i realized that each country or each a uh, calendar we have nepali ca calendar as well it's it has a different mother's day and i'm like yeah. how many in a year we have mother's days like yeah. how many days in, in in a year we have mother's day from western calendar and our local calendar and myanmar calendars like Oh God, this is a lot of dates to remember. Yeah, so exactly. So you have a lot of dates to remember. And then if you forget it, you get in trouble, right? And then, yeah. and also it's very tokenized, you know? Exactly. It's, yeah. it, it, all this pressure is put onto this one day, but then it makes it sound like, but you can misbehave the rest of the year. 
And, and so, it's also very capitalistic. It's like mm. you have to buy things to celebrate this day, like Valentine's Day. Like these yeah. days, I, I don't really appreciate them. Oh, um, no. I also agree with your mother's point on <laughs> celebrate me every day. <laughs> well, it's, it's not even that. It's not even celebrate me every day. It's just kind of laugh. You know, don't, don't use this as an excuse to come and say, <laughs> oh, forgive me for everything else bad I've done because today I celebrate you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I asked you about this, like this value contradiction, because growing up as a Nepali in, in Shan state with, mm. um, with Myanmar nationality, I, I had a lot of contradictory and confusing because mm. um, I, as a Nepali, I was taught to um, restrain myself during menstruation, which means that I was not allowed to touch things inside the house. And I was not, I was not allowed to go to temples because I was I was not pure at that time. And mm. I remember my friends on period, they were going around and touching things. My mm. Shan friends and my Burmese mm. friends, there were no restriction with their family. And I was confused and I would ask oh. them like, is it allowed for you to touch things? Like, yeah, but only the shrink, you know, we are allowed to do it. And yeah. I was, I was very angry and sad and confused like as a child. And I went to my mother and asked like, why are we doing this? And to which she said like, this is why I asked you about your parents, how they mm. brought you up. I think as, as someone who is outside, like I am the third generation in my family to to be born and raised in, in, in this country, in Myanmar. Mm. And I think because we are outside the country, we tend to be very protective of our cultural yeah. practices, even though it's harmful and yeah, even the irrational country. ones. Exactly, <laughs> and, and 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 that was just—it's just confusing for a, for a child to be mm. to be growing up in that kind of contradictory society where once culture teach you something like at school i learned something very different and at home mm. it's the other thing as well right mm. so um let's talk about you again about the food thing <laughs> like what what kept you interested in in learning about food or just be interested in food um so my so my mom and dad are both foodies so i i mentioned already so they're both uh, doctors and so in, in, in Myanmar, doctors are kind of, they're, they're, they're civil servants and they basically have to go wherever the government tells them to go, right? That's always been the case. And so my parents at some point, at some points, they actually live separately because, you know, one got posted to, so my mom was posted to Mimio and my dad was posted to somewhere else. I think he stayed in Mandalay. So, and, and at that point they already had my two brothers, two children. So it was a strange situation where my mom was living with my little brother and my dad was living with my older brother. Um, but it meant because they got to travel around, they had a certain amount of, uh, it's not quite freedom, but they saw more of the country than a lot of people get to see because mm. they were living in lots of different parts because the government said, go be a doctor here go be a doctor there. Um, right. But it meant that they got to eat lots of different food because uh. especially in like the past, in olden days, I'm making my parents sound really old here. But <laughs> in, in, in olden days, um, like people and food didn't travel very easily. You, you know, yeah. even until recently, like even like kind of going from Mandalay to Yangon, airplane is incredibly expensive so you know they've got limousine buses now which aren't great 
But you know, <laughs> if, if you're still getting a train, right, that takes forever. And so the movement is is hampered even without the other problems, which meant that you don't really get to taste the different cuisines, the different regions, you know, all the different foods and dishes. But my mom and dad did. And so so they would say, oh yeah, da da and so they they love food. And so ever since I was little, all I remember is my mum cooking lots and lots of different things. My dad, um, my dad didn't cook, but my dad makes salads. Um, he's like mm. the salad king. So <laughs> whenever anything, and so, so they were always in the kitchen, always talking about food, always eating food. And so it was just, it was just such a huge part of my life. It's unavoidable part of my mm. life. Right? Um, and so I obviously became a, a big foodie. My my mom didn't really teach me how to cook though, because she's similar to me. So she's a bit of a you know tyrant, and and so she's, the <laughs> boss. she's definitely boss. But she would let me kind of sit next to her while he I would just sit and watch her. Um, and sometimes I would like write notes, and 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 so I'd learn my observation. Yeah, because I loved. I really wanted to know. Um, but strangely, I didn't actually start cooking from, well, not strangely, because my mom's <laughs> so bossy. I didn't start cooking until I was at university because at university, obviously I had my own kitchen. On your own. Yeah. Yeah. Finally. And, <laughs> and so I spent most of my time cooking, um, because finally I had the chance to, to cook and to experiment and to like make the dishes my mum made, but also make other dishes like Western dishes that I had, hadn't had before. Um. And it's kind of, I became known at university for being like the chef in our university. Um, and so people would always know that if they came, they would know that there was something to eat. I would always be, that's the kind of thing I like doing. It's like huge saucepans oh. full of lots and lots of different food. Even so much that like in our university yearbook, when we left, um, we had to write each other's biographies. And in my yearbook, my friends wrote that <laughs> she's the chef, everyone cooks. You know that you will never, you will never be hungry if you go near her. So that was my reputation, even at university. Um, and then so I um so I did I did law at university and I I, I qualified as a lawyer. So I am a lawyer by background. Um, but then so you do you know the show MasterChef? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I think there's even official MasterChef Myanmar now, isn't there? Uh, yeah, there is. And then, of course, <laughs> there's, there's Sue, who's now on MasterChef USA. Yeah. So, so yeah, we're very proud, very proud. We <laughs> but, are. <laughs> <laughs> but but MasterChef um, at the time is, I think, still just a UK show, a UK TV show. And so yeah. I, I got addicted to watching that when I came home from work. Um, wow. <laughs> but the reason I got addicted is because the the presenters are, are kind of unintentional hot. comedians, right? They're uh, very funny, right? I don't think I said hard. <laughs> no, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, comedian. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're funny. And and so the episodes were really the TV show was really funny to watch. And so I started off kind of talking to my husband about it all the time saying oh you need to watch this you know I'm, I'm one of those people who goes oh watch this listen to this it's really funny because husband, I like it <laughs> yeah yeah you know the whole I want to share but you know blah. Uh, mm -hmm. and then my my husband was like why didn't you write about this because I think other people might be interested and this was in 
this is like 2009. So in 2009, social media didn't really exist. So now like people live tweet about TV shows. Yeah. So they give commentary. It's easy to do. But at the time there wasn't anything like that, but people had started writing blogs. And Uh so, so I started writing a blog. And so I started the blog specifically so that I could talk about MasterChef. But then I realized I wanted to talk about other things. So I started talking about um, food. I started putting recipes on there. I started writing about kind of Asian food. It's a written blog, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very, very old school, very kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, here's a story, here's an introduction, here's a recipe. (laughs) And then then I started writing more. And then what happened was that... um, Twitter kind of started taking off at that point but because it was still quite early on um there weren't that many people on it and so mm. it was really especially easy to, none for me <laughs> no no but but it meant that it was quite easy to to reach out to to famous people oh. and when I say famous I don't mean like Hollywood <laughs> stars but I mean like the, the people that were on your tv cooking and so I started kind of chatting to people who were in the food world um, so chatting to people who like people, people on MasterChef, that kind of thing. And it meant that I started kind of getting like a community of foodies. Um, and then because that happened and then I started getting more well-known for talking about food and talking about Asian food, particularly, it, it meant that like I got approached by an agent and a publisher who basically said, we'd really like you to write a book about noodles because you know a lot about or you talk a lot about Asian food doesn't mean you know it but you talk a lot about (laughs) Asian food and we think you'd be the a really good person to write this book for us and I guess that's when it started becoming more of a professional thing for me um right and 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 this like I really like you pointed out about just because you're talking doesn't mean you know it let's talk about that like you know I like what was it like for you to write a book on on the first time writing about food like what are the details that you didn't expect uh, happen in during the writing process and publishing process what was your challenges or general experiences um so <laughs> i've i've mentioned this before and I, I i so one of the issues actually was that obviously it's a, it's an asian i'm an asian and it's written from an asian point of view most of the recipes are asian food um but when when it was edited they, the editor was an english woman Uh-oh. um and <laughs> i don't think she was that familiar with asian food and mm. so they sent the the manuscript back to me and she had corrected lots of things that weren't wrong because like, from her point oh, of view it was uh-huh. wrong from her from from a, like a so so here's w- one example so pasta apparently i mean it, there's still a little bit of debate about this but when you boil pasta you're not meant to wash it right you're meant to keep the starch so the sticky uh-huh. kind of starch is meant to stay but with asian noodles you always wash your noodles yeah, because that's what I was going to say. We yeah, wash it all yeah. the time. <laughs> exactly. You wash it so it's not sticky. So they, they're nice and separate, right? Um, so the so the editor had gone through my book and she'd, she'd like crossed all of that out and said, no, you mustn't wash it. And so it's that kind of the Western 
point of view being imposed on the Asian yeah. point of view. So that was interesting because it, it was, a, I, you know, I had to have discussions with my publisher and say, no, that's not right because she's she's using kind of Western um, practice and Western tradition, and this book is about Asian tradition. So it's that that's like an example of how it was quite interesting <laughs> and challenging. Yeah, right. So right. Um, but I mean, otherwise, it was it was it was. I guess the other main challenge is, I think you, you would understand this, is the fact that you know, the way most Asian cultures and actually other cultures cook is here's a pinch of this and a handful of this. And, a, you know, like a, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of random, no precise measurements, but obviously for a cookbook, you have to give exact measurements. Right. Yeah. And so that I found that very difficult because um. I'd never cooked like that before. And so I was having to get, I, I got scales for the first time in my life, weighing scales so right. that I could actually weigh <laughs> the amounts that I was putting in. Um, and then, you know, it's even things like how many teaspoons exactly. And oh, it has that to be is ridiculous. Flat <laughs> teaspoon because if you, if you have a, like a mau mau in, that's a very confusing. So yeah, you, it's, it's just very precise. So yeah, it, it became quite scientific in a way that I had not been scientific <laughs> before. So, so yeah, that, that is so funny because, you know, I remember um, when I was drinking a, um, a cup of coffee one of the morning with other friends around me and there was one of them was white friend from from us and instead of pouring down coffee with spoon like i was just put the powder of the coffee just like that you know like yeah. i didn't measure anything i didn't think that it's too much or too little like i just measure it with my eyes you yeah. know and she was like Nanda, why, how did you do it? Like, like you have to measure it like three spoon or four spoon. I'm like, dude, nope. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always like, I'm always taken aback whenever people measure things before cooking, like, oh, one spoon or half spoon. And like, mm. even in the, in the label, when you buy something, it mm. asks you to put how many spoon for this and that. I'm like, you don't get to tell me how, how much I can put. No, no. I'm in charge. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but this is why I don't bake, though, because I think with baking, you can't make it up as you go along. So. Uh, okay. I, I don't know you, how to bake either. No, no, no. Yeah. no. Because, because like a cake or bread, all of those things, they won't work unless you use the precise measurements. And so I hate baking, basically. <laughs> Yeah, and speaking of like, you know, um, Asian food, I think we must talk about your podcast, which is, which is MSG part. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. Like, why did you start a, a podcast with the name MSG? Because it's a very, like, I remember, I think last month, you guys were, when I say you guys, the foodie, we're having a debate on, <laughs> like, the, among the Western who thinks that MSG is unhealthy and like, you know, you mm -hmm. shouldn't eat a lot la 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 tell us about that tell us about msg podcast why did you start it in um <laughs> so i started that as uh, with my friend so I, I do it with a friend of mine who's a vietnamese um chinese woman called hung um and basically we started it because um we were fed up of people uh, telling us that msg was poison and the mm -hmm. reason, basically, for 99% of these people complaining about it, whether they know it or not, it's because of racism, right? Because the association in the West very much so is that MSG is only in Asian food, 
specifically Chinese food. So right. they even call it Chinese restaurant syndrome, right? So they wow. think Asian, Asian food is poisonous and dirty, right? And it kind of got worse because during the pandemic, what happened, especially here in the UK and in the, in the States, people started boycotting Chinese businesses. So they wouldn't go to Chinatown. They wouldn't go to Chinese restaurants because they thought eh, they thought they were dirty because they use MSG and they all eat bats, right? Because that's why people think the pandemic started mm-hmm. because Chinese people eat bats, right? So like I said, it's all just ridiculous racism because yeah. there has never, well, number one, all, all cuisines in the world use MSG in some form, either the refined version or natural because MSG is chemically identical to glutamate, which you find in tomatoes, in mushrooms, in cheese. Um, but and, and then they obviously they use it in a lot of processed foods. So like crisps, um, gravies, powders, stocks, it's, it's used in all of those things. But it's only Asian food that gets blamed for this kind of dirtiness, uh, cold poisonous. Um, and so Hung and I just thought, right, this is ridiculous because there is, A, it's used everywhere. B, there is no medical evidence that it is, there's anything wrong with it. You know, it's been approved by governments all over the world. So the Western governments, not just the Asian governments. Um, And so it is safe to use, but there persists, you know, it's very similar to the people (laughs) that don't believe in vaccinations. Oh yeah. So it's basically the same people who don't believe in vaccinations believe that MSG is poison, right? Because it's all about, oh, I'm not going to put something strange in my body Oh, that kind of thing. Um, and so Helen <laughs> and I thought, right, we we are going to we're going to start this podcast, um, and we're going to make sure that we're going to mention MSG, how it's safe <laughs> to use, how everyone should use it, um, and then the other thing that we wanted to do because we didn't want it to be just an Asian podcast. So even though I'm Asian, she's Asian, we wanted to make sure that the audience was wider because we wanted, I guess, to educate everybody, right? Um, mm. And so we deliberately kind of got guests who would appeal to everyone so not just people that were famous to the Asian community and so we're really lucky because um basically I kind of know Nigella Lawson um anyway um but I I I basically kind of said to her would you please be our guest for the Christmas episode (laughs) um and she said yes which is you know we're really happy about so you know we spent an hour and a half talking to Nigella Lawson about Christmas but also about MSG and it just meant that like in one kind of in one episode we managed to make people understand that you don't have to be Asian to use MSG and it's safe and one of the most famous cooks in the entire world uses it so go away (laughs) and shut up you know yeah Oh my God. Yeah, there was a huge debate. I saw that you guys were like, you know, engaging in this dialogue about, and you were practically offering them all these researches made by Mm. uh, different scientists about how MSG is not harmful. And the week after that uh, debate that I saw on Twitter between some of you guys, (laughs) I I was um, at the immigration office where I met a lot of friends from Burma and they were saying that one of them was saying after we ate lunch together she said oh the food must have MSG and I asked her 
what makes you think so and she said oh now i'm starting to feel sleepy msg is very <laughs> and uh, like it's, it's not, not good for my body i know it's and i told true. her about about what you share online and because i've read it and yeah. listened to some of the youtube video and i explained it to her but she keep denying that yeah. oh it's msg the entire family is not um um adaptable to msg every time we ate msg we feel very sleepy even we drunk like five cup of coffee and i'm like i'm pretty sure that's myth you know that's just a myth <laughs> that you carry in your head and that's just yeah. placebo effect or something <laughs> exactly no it is but the, the the problem is because you know it's this myth started in the 1960s so in america it was used everywhere it was, they used to have some uh, like uh, they called it the third shaker right so they'd have salt pepper and msg so it was used and in, in homes in america but it was only in the 60s which is when this there was this kind of letter which said oh i i feel you know i have all these weird symptoms it must be msg that's <laughs> when this propaganda basically uh flooded into the world and yeah. it has been around since <laughs> 60s so i know and i don't I, i'm gonna tell you this funny story in my family my mm. father used to be like he's he passed away 12 years uh, 11 years ago and oh. my father and mother they used to have this msg fight because my mother loved msg <laughs> father is an anti msg i remember oh, no. in our childhood we love as children and in the house we love msg so we used to protect our mother so my mother <laughs> used to keep msg in closets and like you know in random <laughs> places so that my father cannot find it and my father as soon as he saw msg he would put it on fire we used to have this wooden <gasps> fire thing in the village because he was very anti and you know someday oh, my wow. mother test him by putting msg in the food and someday he wouldn't know because he thought that oh he put it on fire so it's not there anymore <laughs> <laughs> so it was so funny to see those reaction and our entire childhood was about those debate between my father and mother on msg and but we love msg like now without msg i can't eat anything like salad <laughs> especially i love it's having so good Exactly. so good in a dressing <laughs> in a salad yeah no it's amazing but it's like you know you know like lepetto right lepetto, oh. I, I i realized i actually didn't put this in my um i didn't put this in my book so in my recipe for lepetto i don't mention msg right and the reason i don't mention it is because in this country there are a couple of different suppliers of lepet um and all the suppliers their lepet is already seasoned right mm -hmm. so which means that you don't really have to add anything extra because it's already seasoned but i hadn't really looked at the ingredients of all of these um the commercially available lepet in this country and i just assumed that it had msg in it because it tastes like umami yeah. you know the japanese one umami yeah. um and then i was looking at the labels properly and it doesn't say msg it says uh. seaweed it says seaweed but seaweed is where msg comes from <laughs> so I know, right? I, people just think that just because it doesn't have the word MSG, yeah. it's not there. But MSG comes with different forms, just like gluten comes with different language or ter yeah. terminology. So all of you guys who are listening, you're probably eating MSG. You are. You're eating. And also, everybody, it's in breast milk. So you had it when you were a baby. If your mom breastfed you, you had it when you were a baby. So shut up. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And let's talk about your second book. Like, why did you uh, decided to write second book, uh, which is Mandalay and mm. Tales from Burmese something, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> recipes and Tales from a Burmese Kitchen. Right. Yeah. Tell us, why um, did you write it? Because I guess so. <laughs> I I kind of wanted to do it, and I didn't, and I kind of didn't want to do it. So the reason the reason I didn't want to do it is because I'm a very lazy person, right? <laughs> I, I I I even cooking. I kind of like cooking, but this is why I said I would never have a restaurant because that sounds like too much work, too much effort, it right? Is, yeah. I would I I and in even cooking, I'd much prefer if someone else cooks for me. And I think even in the at the front of my book I wrote I wrote this for my children because when they're old enough I want them to cook for me but the reason I wrote this book I think is partly because all of the books that are already in English all the books that already exist in English are all kind of lower Burma so they're yeah. all kind of more Rangoon food Yangon food um, Yangon tastes um, and and kind of even lower down so and, and as I, I said to you earlier, the food in, in Burma is very regionally quite distinct. And so there weren't recipes for the things that I ate so much, mm. right? That we ate at home. So, you know, you'd have recipes for mohingar or onokaswer or barone. But like there wasn't um, recipes for jazanjet or mishe yeah. or tamenjen or like the stuff that we I ate, you know, at home daily with my parents, but also as a grown up, I still cook. And I just kind of wanted to document that there's more, there's more to Burmese food than Mohinga, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, because that's <laughs> most people, yeah, yeah, no, no, most people think there's like three dishes, right? And so, <laughs> and so I thought, no, there's more than that. I mean, you know that you're from Shambi, so you, you yeah. know that there's so much more different food. And so, and so I, I kind of wanted to write about other things. And the other thing I also, is I wanted to write a bit more about the culture and the history because, um, most of the cookbooks that exist are quite practical. So they give you kind of instructions on how to cook. They tell you about ingredients, all those kind of things. But there wasn't much story behind it. And that's why with my book, I wanted it to be called And Tales, so not just recipes. Um, and so, I mean, I guess the book, because it's like a 40-page introduction, it's like the closest, <laughs> it's the closest to like an autobiography that um. I will probably ever write. And so, you know, it ex explains about my childhood. It explains about how, you know, my family live in different parts of Burma. It explains, it even explains the fact that my parents said, no, we're going to teach you Burmese because the head teacher said you can't learn to speak Burmese. So, so it's, it's I know, it's that is of... ridiculous. So, Where yeah. Where can people so buy your book? Anywhere, actually. It's, a, it's a, mm -hmm. if you're, so if you're not in the UK, the book depository is probably the best place. And that gives free delivery around the world. Um, but Amazon, terrible Amazon. Okay. Also <laughs> it, so. Yeah. Let's talk about what's happening right now in Myanmar, since we have talked, cover about who you are and what you've been doing so far. And I want to talk the the other part of you, which is an activist spirit, you know, and mm. since the coup took over the country, you have been actively using your platform to amplify the situation in Myanmar and to raise awareness and raise funding uh, for, for people in Myanmar. I love Deborah Frenches White <laughs> and you were on Guilty Feminist show as well. And I was, um, I was so excited and happy that there was someone from Myanmar, you know, uh, Burmese 
person in the show and you talk really well and explain the situation in Myanmar. I know like everyone in Myanmar have been emotionally invested with the situation right now in Myanmar. Mm. I want to know like what was your reaction on the day of the coup? Like how did you feel and what was your what was your I don't know situation on that day? Mm. Okay. So so I guess you know so like I said I'm I'm 42 so I kind of I I grew up knowing that Burma Myanmar most of you know the, the past however many decades has not been a good or safe place to be you know that's what that's why my family left right this is why we're in the UK because it wasn't safe for them to stay anymore and so I I think I'm quite cynical, or I had been quite cynical. So even when we had the civilian government come in, in 2010, even when democracy started to become like a real thing, I don't think I or any of my family, even my family in Burma, not just my family here, I don't think anyone really believed yeah. 100% that this was going to happen you know it's like in you know when your trust has been broken for such a long time you you don't trust anymore yeah yeah you can't fix it anymore yeah you can't fix it and so I think we were really happy to see things changing like it, it was crazy because you know I remember the days when people didn't have um cellulale you know don't have mobile phones because they're yeah. so expensive sim cards were so expensive people people didn't have the ways and means to do anything and then suddenly like people had freedom right and so we were so happy but also in the back of our mind scared mm. still right because yeah. we know what you know we you know we know what the military is like we know what they are capable of and so we kept thinking is this real is this going to happen what's going to happen and then of course time passed and you know things move on and then it begins to look like oh wow is maybe Myanmar really is becoming a real democracy maybe you know people like you right because people like you couldn't exist your platform your podcast until very recently recently yeah and and so we were so happy to see you know this kind of thriving flourishing freedoms again because this is something that had only ever been like a dream before right um and then you know the the, the election started being held again and then you know Dors Dorsu came out of prison and she was kind of in charge but not really in charge and <laughs> And then obviously lots of other things were happening. And then, of course, the situation with the Rohingya. And it just meant that from the outside, it was hard to know what was going on and hard to know what was really happening and hard to know what was going to happen, right? But then, you know, when when the the, the election, the one that just happened in 2000, when, when was the election? 2020? 15. No, oh, and I'm, I'm, I'm 20, trying, yeah. yeah, but but in the middle, obviously, things were still happening. So, like you know, there's still like the saffron revolution was happening. There was, you know, the the student riots at Lepadan, and you know, this there were still people going missing. There were still people having to flee Getting for their arrested, own safety. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and so it was kind of a situation where 
everybody in the Western world decided that Burma was safe and great and woohoo, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and the rest of us were like, no, I I don't I don't know that this is right because now you've decided that we're fine. You've, you're ignoring us and like all the tourists are coming in and everybody, all the businesses are coming in and and I would love to believe this is real, but I don't know. And then, and then, as, as he said, the, when when it happened, the, the most recent election, we had already heard rumors that the military had had enough. Like mm-hmm. they were, they were, they were fed up of kind of like not being. Yeah. They were fed up of negotiations, and also they were fed up of not being the ones that were obviously in charge, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, they were, because you know the. the they're power hungry they're megalomaniac right so they want they want the power and they want the obvious power and they miss the good old days of dictatorship right um and so when when we finally heard this thing that overnight the women and dorsu had been i think everyone was saying that they'd been kidnapped that was the, the, the rumor that had gone around right they were like no they've they've been kidnapped they've disappeared and so so here this this is on the 31st this happened so i think it would have been very early hours, first of February, Bamamima. Yeah, but, he, but but here it was kind of very late on the thirty first because of the time zone difference. And so I remember I I put a tweet on on Twitter saying, "Oh for fuck's sake, I think my country's my motherland's going for a coup," and I didn't say anything else. And the reason I didn't say anything else is I I, I kind of I think I mentioned this when I wrote um, I wrote a piece in Time, but basically. When my family came to this country, my parents had to sign like a contract with the the military saying that they would not speak publicly about Burma and that their children would not speak publicly about Burma, right? And this, on the contract- This is a thing? Like you have yeah, to do yeah, yeah. that? Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, and it, it was relatively common. Basically, it was the we allow you to leave this country because you're signing this contract saying that you won't you won't say anything, right? And so, on this contract, um, they had put like the names of my family that were still in Myanmar, so like my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, and and basically it was like if you in the UK say anything publicly against the military government, then we will arrest your parents, we will arrest your sisters and brothers. Right. And so so I grew up being told never, ever speak about politics publicly. Even if you're outside the country, that's oh my that is that that is coming to me as a surprise, because inside the country, I knew that there was a lot of, you know, limitation to speak up about it. But Mm. I didn't realize that you you had to go through something similar. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why a lot of the diaspora, a lot of people like in my situation, won't say anything, haven't mm. said anything. It's not because it's not because they don't like. It's not because they support the junta. It's not because they support the terrorists. It's because they're afraid that their family in Burma will get arrested or killed because they said the wrong thing, right? And yeah. so, and so I said that, but I didn't say anything else. And I ended up doing this thing where I kind of just did a lot of kind of oblique. <laughs> you know like subtweeting and so i i would post things yeah yeah so i would post things that were kind of not directly about the government so i posted but powerful yeah so i posted like extracts from like a history book 
which was basically the same situation. Yeah. But I but I was like, oh, look at this history book from 1965 or whatever. <laughs> and I'm I was saying, saying anything, it. just look at it. I, yeah. I'm not actually saying anything. <laughs> and then I was I did that for um, I don't know, maybe like a couple of weeks or something. And then every day I was basically saying to my parents, can I please say something publicly? Because I have a, a quite a big platform here. You know, I you know people know who I am. I'm 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 someone who is Burmese British that people you know at least food people know who I am and so I could use my platform to talk about and raise awareness but my mum and dad were so scared and they are still scared that their family would get arrested or killed they said please don't say anything please don't do anything and they they said that for like I said for like two weeks I think this was my parents said and then my own family in Burma started going out protesting. Uh, and so, and so I said to permission. <laughs> yeah. So I said to my parents, it's not my fault if they get killed now because they're the ones going on the street. I, you know, it's not, yeah. blade, I mean, you know what I mean? It's kind I of, I know, like, yeah. It's, because it's, it's, it's their, their decision. They're the ones putting themselves on the front lines. They're the ones who are kind of, going out there protesting and so anything I do here doesn't is no longer a problem because that's that you know their their safety is in their own hands but you know so so that's when I finally got permission you like, frame really talking. well <laughs> yeah no so that, that's that's when I finally got permission so you know then I thought right that's it I'm gonna just talk about it and shout about it every day because I can do it now Right now, you are an author and you also write in journal um, in some really big magazine and you have been amplifying voices of Myanmar people and you wrote a piece on, on, on time, like you said earlier. What aspired to write that piece? Because that piece inspires a lot of people, encourages a lot of people to also reflect on the women's women's from the history that how Myanmar women has been always empower like we didn't need white savior to come yeah. and like empower us or make make us strong or um, you know revolutionize in their version we yeah. had our own empowerment uh, technique and 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 practices that we had and we shared among each other uh, and the progress that Myanmar women has made over the past few a uh, few few years have been also remarkable in mm. ways that now we can see women are on front line and in the front line like it's it's just a historical uh, movement to 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 witness the entire thing that's happening and i'm mm. sure this will inspire generations of women to to see how empowered Myanmar women are so mm. like what was your inspiration behind writing that uh, article i think the main thing was that so it's been a long time now you know it, it's a it was the fourth anniversary the fourth month since the coup and almost five now. almost five but when 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 the article came out it was four months yeah. and I think I've beginning to see obviously people are getting tired and people are also beginning to to get slightly demoralized because not because they lose hope in themselves but I think because they've been losing hope in the in the outside world, right? Because, you know, the UN, ASEAN, 
they're not really <laughs> doing anything, right? Their thoughts and prayers, Lee. That's the they're basically they're offering strongly worded statements. Um, and then they have their meetings, and then the meetings don't achieve anything. We've just had G7. I don't know that that's achieved anything. Um, and I think I just wanted people to to keep believing in themselves and to understand that, you know, this is, you know, what you've been teaching people, the, the, the most powerful person is yourself, right? You need to believe in yourself and have courage and understand that no, in the end, I don't think anyone's going to help us apart from ourselves. Right. Yeah. And so I think the, I, my, my main motivation in writing that piece and the one that before it is just to keep people um keep their morale up you know keep them boosted because i want i want and you know this is a it's going to be a long thing and people need to understand that they are strong they also need to understand that obviously they need to look after themselves um i want people to kind of give themselves a break when they need to and understand that you know things like self-care are really important but but in the end I still believe that the people of Myanmar will will win, right? I still believe that everyone, you know, we, we will, this goal, we will achieve this goal and we will overthrow the military. But it's just a case of keeping people's spirits alive. Um, and I think particularly, obviously, as you say, it's really important to remind the women that we are strong and we don't need... You know, it's great to have allies. It's great <laughs> yeah. to have men who are working with us. Um, even now, you know, like the Sisters to Sisters um, campaign where, you know, that's kind of end the sexual violence, um, the campaigns that the military has used against ethnic minorities, but against the people who are in prison now. Um, you know, this campaign is to highlight that. And there have been so I just saw today there are some men who have been getting involved so like they're wearing the red lipstick as well to show that they support but yeah. the point is is that we we don't need men to save us we don't need yeah. we don't need westerners to save us we can save ourselves we just need to believe it and that I guess is my my motivation and my inspiration for writing those pieces yeah I think it's a wrong revolution like what you said about um this even in the midst of this anti-coup movement, we can see anti-patriarchy movement, right? Mm. Where like so revolution is one of the examples that I feel extremely um, proud of, which um, is it's like someone said that it's not just a political revolution, it's a cultural revolution as yes. well. Normalizing people that woman clothings are just normal clothing, mm. like stop feeling disgusted by it or think that it is some sort of thing that can lower your invisible power. Mm. <laughs> so, it's like, it's, it's yeah. something that I think you mentioned in a previous piece where you were saying that the thing about the military is because they have kind of cemented themselves into culture yeah, yeah because they have made it that they are burmese culture which is bullshit right but because <laughs> they've know, done yeah. that they have made they all of their values and all the values all the values that we already had that were bad because we already had bad values from kind of <laughs> buddhism that was a bit wrong and Burmese culture that was was kind of wrong because obviously this this nonsense about men being the ones that will achieve nirvana it's 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 all nonsense <laughs> right um 
But the military obviously got hold of that nonsense and, and made it even worse because it was advantageous yeah. to them because they wanted to, you know, it, it was their way of keeping people down, right? If they make yeah. women believe that they're bad, if they make women believe that they're shit, then women, however strong we are, it's going to kind of seep into your subconscious, right? And so it's really important that we push back and we have been pushing back. So like yeah. you say, it's been amazing. And, you know, this is why my backdrop is a lonely right now, right? It's the same reason. <laughs> it's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> With this uh, political crisis, we've seen a lot of revolution um, uh, movement that have uh, highlighted the, the contributions of women of Burma and the contribution of people of Burma in general, how they are empowered and strong yeah. and brilliant and have been making a differences and taking down the military. Ma, is there anything you would like the NUG government to know or like any recommendation or is, send any sort of ideas that you would like them to consider, you know, as someone who have been amplifying the voices of Myanmar people as well as the situation in Myanmar to the world? So do you have a few words that you would like to say to the government, NUG government? My main advice for the National Unity Government is please listen to and engage with the concerns of Myanmar's different ethnic groups and be genuinely inclusive. We've heard Dr. Sasa use the phrase United States of Myanmar, but the NUG needs to work towards a true federal democracy if our beautiful country is to finally have the stability and the peace that she deserves. Amma, you've been a very fun person to talk to and thank you for sharing <laughs> your journey of uh, becoming a, a, a writer and a, a person who is devoted to food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I miss just talking about food and hopefully when the revolution <laughs> is won, I will start just talking about food again and that would be lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and people can listen to your MSG pod on any way they listen to podcasts, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you for your time, Mama. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> If you like this episode of Jiro Zagawai, please don't forget to like, comment and share so that we can create content that you can learn, enjoy and feel inspired to. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening.